Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Season 8 of Game of Thrones is underway, and you can stay up to date with the Ringer staff as we make our way through the final episodes of the series. On the podcast side, listen to Binge Mode Game of Thrones with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald, and a pre-capable series on the Recapables feed where we'll make predictions on episodes to come. In addition to our Sunday night Twitter after show called Talk the Thrones, our YouTube channel has tons of other Game of Thrones-related content, which you can find at youtube.com slash theringer. And for even more Thrones coverage, head over to theringer.com. Hello and welcome to the Ringer NBA show. This is another long two edition of the Corner Three. My name is Danny Chow and joining me on the other line in Dallas is Ringer staff writer Jonathan Charks. How's it going, man? Good, man. Uh... Kevin is out. If you haven't gotten a chance to read his piece about his father, I think it came out last week. It's pretty incredible. It's definitely worth your time. I would recommend checking that out for sure. Absolutely. Our hearts and minds are, are with the O'Connor family. Um, yeah, so we are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel in the Eastern Conference. Uh, the two best teams in the regular season in the East are kind of taking control of their respective series. The Raptors had a true statement game five win at home winning by 36 points on Tuesday and the Bucks have a commanding 3-1 lead over the Celtics after their easy win over the Celtics on Monday. Uh, it's a tough time to be a Sixers or Celtics fan right now. John Gonzalez and Michael Bauman got pretty deep into their sadness last night on an emergency pod which you can check out now or you know, not now, but after you're done listening to me and Charts ramble for the next <laughs> hour or so. <laughs> nice. But, you know, with, with one more loss, we might be, you know, staring at the darkest timeline for both teams, which is pretty disappointing given how wide open their window has looked only a few months ago. Let's start with Philly. What kickstarts their darkest timeline, Charts? Well, isn't it amazing? It was just last week and Bede was doing the airplane he was windmilling dunks. Like, life was good, man. The playoffs, life will turn on you fast. I, I just, I don't know really what to make of these string of illnesses. They're not even injuries. They're, they're illnesses in the second round that, that can't really be lumped into his physical kind of injuries over the years. But it's, it's really disappointing that he can't really seem to stay 100% on the court for very long at all. Yeah, my thing with Embiid, I just feel like, even taking out the injuries, even taking out the illnesses, you're seeing, he's like seeing how he has to like improve his game. Cause like most of the season, Embiid can just dominate people. Like he's too big, he's too fast, he just scores a will, right? But against like a Marcus Saul, against an Al Horford, that's just not enough. Like you have to have polish to your game, you have to make your jump shots, you've got to make the right passes, you've got to be right position on defense. Like Embiid is learning just how good you have to be to play at this level. I mean, it's easy to forget he's only 20, 25. This is his third year in the NBA. Like most guys like Embiid, they need time to get better. Or even like, I remember with, so I was back to Dirk, right? So Dirk, when he was in Dallas, like the story is after Nash left, he really took a step forward in part because he stopped going out as much. He took better care of his body. He stopped drinking. Like these are things as a young big man, you got to learn the hard way, unfortunately. And, you know, from, from all accounts, I mean, it, it sounds like Embiid's still very much a Shirley Temple drinker. So maybe it's not necessarily the, the nightlife he has to uh, account for, at least the, the, you know, the alcohol part of it. But I, I wonder what it is about, you know, these, these weird, like, unrelated 
illnesses. Like uh, he had gastroenteritis earlier in the se- earlier in the series. Um, he had to get IV treatment, and he was ap- apparently throwing up the morning of Game Five. Uh, but he he had told reporters that it was just not related to uh, his earlier spat of illnesses. So like it's it's so bizarre that we're we're kind of seeing Embiid not at the level he's capable of, but also it's just like what the hell's going on with his body? Yeah, and I mean, even if he was healthy, like, do we really think Embiid is going to play at a high level on days with one day off between games while traveling between cities? Like, it's hard. The, the playoffs to this level is hard, and you got to be in great shape. Yeah, and, and that was the biggest talking point during the Net series when he was kind of dealing with the knee stuff still, and he was just clearly winded, clearly out of shape. Yeah, and and to your point, about him kind of having to learn what it takes to become, you know, the, the franchise-changing center that he is lauded to be. A lot of that is just getting reps. And if he can't stay healthy and if he can't kind of play at 100% all the time, he may never really know what that looks like for himself. Well, I think it's like reps at this level, right? It's like reps against the lead competition. And... I mean, I think you look, if you look at like, it doesn't really matter the other players they bring in. Like, obviously, you had a good team, but if you're talking about Embiid, talking about Simmons, these are young guys. And there's a reason teams with their best players are second and third year guys don't win championships very often, right? There's a certain, there's certain things you have to learn, certain habits you have to learn to get away. You can't get away with in the playoffs. You can in the regular season. Like, Embiid and Simmons, their whole lives, they can just dominate on their physical abilities. But now they're at the stage of their careers where it's like, well, that's not enough anymore. Yeah, it's not enough. Right. It's not enough to freelance. And I, I feel like that's a lot of what Embiid has done over the past two seasons. It's it's a lot of him just being like, I am way bigger, way stronger, way more talented than you. And I'm just gonna kind of freewheel until I get my way. But yeah, when you go against a Horford, when you go against Marcus All, who has been battling giants for his entire life, like it it's that's just not I mean, you're not gonna bully enough. those guys. It's just not yeah. gonna happen. So you, don't, you have you watched The Wire? I'm gonna go full hipster here. Go for it. I have, okay. I have not. I've seen four episodes. I've nice. Seen four episodes. You're, you're not hipstering me on this one. So in The <laughs> Wire, like one of the main characters, Omar, he, t- he at one point, like he's walking to the store and like these like young kids, like he's a, he, he robs drug dealers, right? And like these young kids, like he's walking to the store, they get so scared of him, they just give him drugs. And he's like, I don't want this. And, and then his partner's like, why? He's like, look, man, if you're going to spend all day sparring with the puppies, you can't run with the wolves at night. And I feel like MB, like he's beefing with Hassan Whiteside and Andre Drummond. Like, what a waste of his time. Oh, yeah, congrats, bro. You're better than those two fools. Like, that doesn't mean anything. Like, you can stop setting Instagram shots at Andre Drummond. I feel like that's more him kind of like setting up his com- comedic chops. You know, he, he's, he's, he's holding the knife in, in that regard with that. But, I mean, he's, he's done the whole, you know, he, he's posted on Instagram kind of showing the, the path that he wants to take through the, uh, through the playoffs. And I think one of them was like, oh, he he had a picture of him and Al Horford instead of him and Giannis because he thought, you know, the Celtics were a more imposing team. And I think that kind of shows like where he's at. Like he wants to beat Boston ex- so much. Uh and I think he's kind of incorporated that that rivalry, that that civic rivalry into his mentality going forward. But it's like it isn't about imposing your will either. I'm just going to beat the Celtics. I'm going to try so hard. Like you've got to think the game at a high level too. Like it's about like polish. It's about like developing your skills more than like just being bigger and stronger. Right. And then if you talk about developing your skills, we got to talk about Ben Simmons. Absolutely. I mean, he's been, 
He's been like, is he on the court yesterday? It was hard to tell. I mean, at this point, he's kind of being relegated to, okay, uh, I guess your role on this team is to try to stop Kawhi, which is just like, that's not, it's not a, a real task for a, a person who is, you know, supposed to be their lead playmaker and supposed to be, you know, their second most important player on the team. Well, they seem to have pushed it more to Jimmy Butler anyways, the playmaking mm-hmm. roles. It's like Simmons is now, he's just kind of hanging out and like, he's like hanging out near the baseline, like not really doing anything. And it's like, he's kind of being like their version of Draymond Green, I think is the idea. But of course, the thing is like, Draymond Green is a center when it really matters in the playoffs. And to me, right. that's the big thing hanging over Simmons. Like I'm doing a piece on this tomorrow. Like if I look at Ben Simmons, he's 6'10", 240, he can't shoot. Well, what's the best way to use a player that size, that speed with no shooting ability? It's playing it at center. And this is something that we've all kind of beaten around the bush with. Uh, you know, Kevin O'Connor has written multiple times, you know, oh, you need to use him in the screen game. You need to use him as that kind of dream on green presence. But look, if you're playing him as a point guard and you have Embiid and you have these other big men on the floor, there's just not enough space. There's not enough room for him to operate as that. It's as creative as you can get, you know, uh, from the tactical side of it, it's, it just doesn't work logistically on the court. Yeah, and yeah, there there are so many like obvious comparisons to Giannis, even though they are at their core different players. But like the appeal of using Simmons at the center is the same as Giannis. Jason Kidd helped kind of change the perception of Giannis by enabling him as a quote unquote point guard, uh, which kind of opened up the possibilities for what he could develop into. But then Bud kind of realized, you know, he's essentially a playmaking five. And that turned him into the MVP candidate he is now. Do you think the same thing can happen with Simmons? Well, yeah. I mean, you go back to that Nets game, right? Nets game three, his playoff career high. Like, you want to guess who wasn't playing in that game? (laughs) Right? Yeah, exactly. Embiid. I mean, Embiid, like, they just get in each other's way. Like, there was a couple plays in the fourth quarter game that I went back and watched it this morning where Simmons, like, sets a screen, like what KOC is always saying. He sets a screen, rolls the basket, and there's nobody there, Right? Because he's, he's not playing with Embiid or Boban or Greg Monroe or Amir Johnson. And how many stiffs does this team need at center, by the way? My God. And <laughs> those guys are gone. He's rolling through and there's nobody there. Either he's passing an open shooter, he's getting an open dunk, he's finding cutters. Like the game is so much easier for him. And the thing is, like, Simmons needs the game made easier for him. He's not going to, like, go outside a construct in, like, a more limited role. Like, he can't shoot. So right. there's no point in playing him at the four. And I think, as I go back, go back to saying with Embiid, these players, like, they can dominate on talent against lesser competition. But the beauty of the playoffs is, like, you get to a certain point, it's like, that isn't enough anymore. You have to be in the right roles. You have to be in the right system. Because if you're not, you're going to get exposed. And, like, yeah. using Simmons as this Draymond Green off-ball guy doesn't work in this system. It just doesn't. Right. And now we're seeing Ben Simmons essentially play the Andre Robertson role. <laughs> he's just stuck but in like a, a bad version of it because yeah, like at exactly. least Robertson probably wouldn't like Kawhi score 45 points a game or something right Maybe. but like what what do you do at this point like it feels unfair to the Sixers to ask them to cater their system around you know Ben Simmons when he's not their best player and and in the playoffs he's, he hasn't even been their fifth best player I mean here's the darkest timeline stuff right because how can you you can't really trade Simmons to build around Embiid knowing how unhealthy Embiid has been over his career, right? That seems difficult. But you keep Simmons and Embiid together, Simmons can't be the best version of himself. And I think Philly can still use him, 
But if I'm Ben Simmons' agent, if I'm working for Clutch Sports, at a certain point, I'm like, man, my guy's getting killed in the playoffs every year. His rep's getting crushed. Maybe I got to put him in a system that fits his skills. But that can happen with Embiid. And then you've got Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris, too. Like, those guys are free agents. What are they going to do this offseason? Do they want to stick around? I don't even know anymore. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, if, if you're Jimmy Butler, your number one target destination is probably the Lakers, right? I mean, if I'm him and I'm looking at Embiid and Simmons and like the holes in their game and Embiid's health and Simmons' lack of shooting, to me, it's just Wiggins and Towns all over again at mm-hmm. a certain point. And like, I'm old, I'm getting older. I'm trying to win now. Like, and then I could live in LA, play with LeBron. For, for all of LeBron's flaws, like LeBron's a proven playoff performer. The West is getting weaker. Golden State might lose Durant. Jimmy and LeBron in LA, I'd make more sense to me if I was him. But wait, so so the Sixers can offer Jimmy the most money, right? Yeah, they can do that. They can max yeah. him out. But they, are they going to do that and then pay Harris too? Right. Uh, I, are they going to pay $3 million for this team that's very flawed? That's a thing. Like, I, I honestly don't know. I, I honestly don't know what Jimmy prioritizes more than anything. Because I could totally see him, you know, signing with the Nets and, and kind of taking that kind of pick and roll heavy team as his own. And, and kind of becoming the primary option there. I can see him teaming up with LeBron. Uh, I can see him staying for like because he's been the most consistent player in the playoffs for the Sixers this season. I could see a, a lane in which, you know, Embiid misses a lot of time. I can see Simmons maybe being on the trading block and suddenly it's Butler's team and he gets the most money. Um, Talk about darkest timeline. Right? Now you're, yeah. now you're building around 30-year-old Jimmy Butler. And then what does Tobias Harris do? Like, he's kind of... He's just such an afterthought in this offense sometimes. Right. And I, I don't know if he's, he's done himself any favors in, the, in, the, in his kind of free agency push. Uh, he's had maybe like one good shooting game in the past like six games. Yeah. I mean, see, to me, I think he'll still get maxed out because how many 6'9 guys can create their own shot and shoot? Right. Like I, I look at Harris, I say, if he goes to Indiana, he can be like a better version of Thad Young. He can go to Utah, play off Donovan Mitchell. And then he can give them shot creating from the front court, be the second option. Like I'm looking at this whole team and I'm seeing a bunch of guys whose roles aren't being, whose skills aren't being maximized. And it's like, that's a tough sell for young players and even older ones. And like, they got to win. Like, if you're going to be on a team where you're not getting like your best stats, if you're not being your abilities aren't being, aren't being shown to its fullest, if you're going to sacrifice, you've got to be sacrificing for something, right? right? Like, it's a sacrifice for a championship. To sacrifice for a 51 team who's losing the second round every year, that's tough. So do you think Brett, Brett Brown's gone? I don't know. Like, Gons had a good piece about that yes, yesterday or the other day about how Brett's unfair for Brett Brown. Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the problems are bigger than him. I think he's done a good job in the playoffs. I think like some of the stuff he did in this series, changing matchups against Toronto, that was pretty wise. Right. Benching McConnell was smart. Benching Boban was smart. He's making the best of like a fairly limited deck. But... If he gets fired, I don't really care. Whatever. He's just a coach. People worry too much about this kind of stuff, honestly. And honestly, that's kind of his mantra too. It's like it's not it's not the coach who makes the team, it's the players. And so he he'll he'll probably, you know, he would be sad for having lost his job, but he would probably agree with you in principle. Yeah, I mean, what is he like how much money does he make a year? He'll be fine. And he'll get he'll get a, he'll get a job somewhere else. It's just I don't know what to, I don't know what to do. And then the question also is like Elton Brand, is he really in charge? Is Brett Brown in charge in the front office? This whole team, it's just 
let's just say Philly better win on Thursday. Like they need yeah. to keep this thing going as long as they can because who knows what's gonna happen this offseason. Yeah, I, I mean they they made big swings and they made them seemingly without a great sense of where the Sixers were as a franchise. And so I think the audacity is there, whoever's making the decisions in the front office. But if you don't have a strong sense of where your team's actual trajectory is, things can easily fall apart as, as we're seeing. Well, it kind of reminds me, like it reminds me of Lob City when they traded for Chris Paul. And it was like, yeah, Chris Paul can really help these young guys along. But at a certain point, it had to have been about DeAndre and Blake Griffin. When those guys weren't ready to win, when their game wasn't totally maximized, they were still ceiling on the team no matter how many vets they brought around them. And it kind of feels like the same thing happened. Like We're looking at a team that traded for Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris to win possibly one more game in the second round. Right? Right. Like the it always comes back. The playoffs always show who you really are. Like the limitations are there no matter what is around the stars. Yeah, I think I think that brings us to Boston. Uh another team that had extremely high hopes at the beginning of the season uh and are now kind of facing a, a strange, you know, transition point where they're like, "Okay, we're are we going to lose Kyrie?" Man, I'm I'm going to miss his comedy at the very least. Uh <laughs> That I, I'm not going to shoot 8 for 22 again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot 7 for 22. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I probably should take more shots. I love it. I love it, man. Uh, yeah, I feel like with Kyrie, to me, I'm looking at Boston. To me, actually, I actually think it goes back to Gordon Hayward more than Kyrie. Because I think Kyrie is who he is, right? He's a gunner. Like, he gets buckets. But you ask him to be the point guard. You ask him to be the leader. I think the best version of this team was Hayward running point, Kyrie playing off the ball like he did in Cleveland's. But is right. that even possible anymore with Hayward where he is? I don't know. I mean, yeah, Hayward's been so bad in this series, but I do wonder if that's kind of something that they might go to in this elimination game. He's basically been useless spotting in the corners. So it might seem kind of counterintuitive that you might reward a guy who's struggling with more playmaking opportunities, but maybe that's I mean, something they should do, do it, right? Yeah. It's not going like, to be Jalen or Jason or Terry Rogier. Or, yeah, and I definitely trust a lot of those other guys to kind of spot up off the ball like Kyrie's a really good shooter and he can play off ball it's just right now he feels like the weight's on his shoulders um and he's kind of taking over he, he's Kyrie's been um kind of shouldering the load a lot more his isolation numbers are back up uh but he's way less efficient th- on isos than he's ever been in the playoffs uh this is the worst post season uh, of his career in terms of shooting percentages well, like it guess who he's not playing with anymore right right yeah and I, I think like one of the hidden adjustments in the series was after game one, they had they were putting Pat Connaughton on Hayward, and Hayward kind of like shoot over him. And then they moved Middleton on him in those sec in those like second unit minutes when they're playing bench guys. And Middleton just, just is bigger than Hayward. At this point, he's probably more athletic, just as athletic, and he's really bothered to shot. He's taking Hayward out of the series completely. And to me, yeah, if Hayward's gonna play bad, I don't see this series going very much longer. I don't know how you get him better given where he is physically though and mentally. Right. So like, I mean, what, what else is there to say about this Boston team? Like what, what exactly would their, um, Anthony Davis offer be at the end of the season? That's what I was wondering. Cause not like if you trade or it's like Horford, Tatum, Brown and Kyrie walks, then you're left with Davis in one year and Hayward. Like that's not a very good team. Oh, I, don't, I, I don't even know. I wasn't even thinking Horford was going to be a part of that. I guess he would have to be, right? <laughs> Just to match. I mean, Davis makes like $30 million a year. How are you going to match salaries? You're not going to oh. put Hayward starting in, in that deal. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, in my, in my head, I was kind of getting excited for like AD and Horford playing off each other. But yeah, when you put it that way, I'm like, why would they do that? 
Yeah, I mean, Horford's the biggest salary. And the other thing, too, Horford has a player option. So are they going to convince Horford to take his player option and trade him? Like, there's a lot of moving parts here. Maybe they can add Marcus Smart in the contract, in the salary. Which, by the way, do you see a thing with Giannis and Marcus Smart after, the la- after game yeah. four? Wasn't that, that was incredible? Fantastic. <laughs> so Giannis is, like, low-key, actually extremely good at, like, these subtle burns after, after games. Oh, like he did, he did the same thing with Demar Derozan the other like what, what few happened? years I ago. That one. What did he, what did he do? Uh, it was it was something about like how like Demar just wasn't scoring a lot, and he's like, oh well, all of his points came on free throws. And it was just, <laughs> it, it was like a nice like little subtle burn, just like a real matter of fact thing. To say. Yeah, he's just like yeah, no, he didn't make a difference at all. He, all he did was hit free throws. <laughs> it's great. Well, yeah, I'm looking at Boston's like payroll. So, are you going to pay Marcus Morris? He's probably gone, right? Like, he's free agent this summer. Yeah. And then, like, Jalen's up for an extension. How much do you pay him? He's probably going to want a max. Rozier's up for an extension. I mean, I th- and I think they kept Rozier because they were worried Kyrie would leave. To me, I could see it next year just them just going Rozier, Jalen, Gordon, Jason, Horford. That might just be the team. Oh, man. How, I mean, how would you feel about that? I mean, to me, like, I would feel okay if Horford was younger, but we're already seeing Horford kind of take a step back in the regular season this year. It's like, I think Horford is the guy that makes it work, and he's getting older. He's going to be 33 in a month. Yeah, he's an undersized center who's put a lot of miles on his body. So I don't know how much more of a weight he can carry. And so then they just become like a young team, right? They just become how fast can Tatum grow? How fast can Brown grow? How fast can Rozier grow? Like, darkest timeline, man. It was it was game one it was what two weeks ago when they crushed the Bucks and was like man this team is <laughs> yeah, playoffs yeah, dude and even then it was like the the narrative was almost like oh the Bucks aren't ready for this because they've never seen it before and then you know three games later they've seen all of it and now Giannis is just back to being a dominant player so it's like you know it like last year it was all about how the Celtics were able to adjust on the fly and now the Bucks look like they're masters of switching and suddenly they've just kind of solved everything that the, the Celtics could throw at them. I think there's still some moves for Boston to make. I, if I were them, I'd probably stop playing Aaron Baines. I don't see what value he has in the series anymore. Maybe try to go in, go, go in smaller, play Shemi. Play Daniel Thice has been okay. But <laughs> to me, like if they're going to win the series, Hayward's got to play better. I, it's really about Hayward. Like, yeah. Can he get back? It's tough. Like, Can he get back to where he was before he got hurt? Because he was awesome before he got hurt. and It's been two years now where he just two lost seasons, basically. And he has one game left to prove himself, at least this season. Yeah, and then he's got he's getting paid thirty two point seven million to score like two points a game. That's tough. Wild, wild. Whether you're trying to get a sweet deal on something or find the best happy hour in a town, it's generally a good idea to read the reviews first. So why should finding the right software for your business be any different? Read thousands of real software reviews and find the right software for your business at capterra.com slash NBA. Capterra is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 850,000 reviews of products from real software users and more than 700 specific categories of software, from product management to email marketing, it has everything you need to make an informed decision fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. I've been trying to get software for my dad who does some random stuff with his email all the time and Captera has really helped out. So visit captera.com slash NBA for free today to find tools to make an informed software decision for your business. 
capterra.com slash NBA. Capterra, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash NBA. Capterra, software selection simplified. Giannis Adentacumbo is the only player to ever get a signature slipper deal. Hulu is paying Giannis a lot of money to wear fluffy green Hulu has live sports slippers. I wish I had a pair of slippers for when I'm watching the playoffs live on Hulu. They also got Joel to change his nickname from The Process to Joel Hulu has live sports indeed. And Damian Lillard got a tattoo that says Hulu live sports. It's the most blatant form of advertising I've ever seen. Clearly, they really want you to know that Hulu has live sports and that you can watch live sports and news, your favorite teams, and the biggest games on 60-plus top channels just for $45 a month. That's right. Follow your teams all season, no cable required, live TV plan required, restrictions apply. Learn more on Hulu.com. All right. I, I, yeah, I think given the state of, of each series on the West West side of things, I, I think we could hit both of the Western Conference series as well. Uh, on Tuesday night, the Nuggets completely pummeled the Blazers at home in Denver, 124-98. Uh, the big story coming out of that game was Paul Millsap. Uh, after a pretty tepid series against the Spurs, Millsap has been absolutely beasting uh, the Blazers. He's dominating, man. Like He's pretty much scoring it well. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is just like he means so much to that defense that like is basically honed by a bunch of dudes who are, you know, younger than twenty six. They're they're all they're all born after the nineties. Um, Millsap is the only player born in the eighties on that team. <laughs> it's 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 really wild. He he's been a real like strong stabilizing force for them. Uh, I think for the most part, it's because Millsap has been on Aminu, has been on guys who haven't really, who don't really possess a lot of, you know, uh, playmaking prowess on their own. So he's been able to kind of quarterback from the back line, and it's made a huge difference. I mean, that's me been the story for Denver is like they're really exposing, which I mean, we knew it was going to happen eventually, but Aminu and Harkless, they're just not guarding those guys and they're playing off them. It's, it's letting them hide Jokic. Yeah, and Millsap's kind of the middle quarterback in the whole team. You look at like, I feel like I look at these two teams and I look at one team who spent their money on Paul Millsap when they had free agency space and one spent their money on Evan Turner. <laughs> and it's like one, one move like that is such an impact. Like when you're paying $30 million to a veteran, you've got to have the right veteran. And of course, like it isn't really fair to Portland because I don't think Millsap was free that summer, right? No. There's so much luck that goes into it, so much chance that goes into team building, but it's made all the difference in the world. Yeah. The other thing too, I remember, so I did, a, I did a big story on Jokic at training camp. I remember talking to Millsap about it and just like him talking about how he recognized that Jokic was so talented, how he encouraged Jokic to like take a step forward and take control of the team, how he took a step back and started focusing on defense to complement this young star. And this is right when the whole like Jimmy Butler thing happened in Minnesota. And I was like, man, this is what like a great veteran does, right? Like I have the ability to change my game to encourage these younger players, to empower them. I feel like Millsap, to me, like what he's done on and off the court has just been really, it's been really cool to, cool to see a guy like recognize his limitations and kind of make his team better. Because he could have easily pulled a Jimmy Butler if he had wanted to. And been like, I'm Paul Millsap. I'm making $3 million a year. This is my team. Compliment me. And like, you're seeing what he can do when he gets the ball in his hands. He can do a lot of things. Oh, yeah. But he's like, chosen to take a step back. And now when it's time, he can pop in. And I might go to a conference final. Jimmy's out here, you know, fighting with players all the time. 
I mean, it's really amazing that like him and Al Horford are just kind of cut from the same cloth. They they shared the front court for so many years in, in Atlanta. And it's just like, I can't believe those two players coexisted at the same time. And I can't believe the Hawks couldn't do much with that. I mean, they just kept running into LeBron, right? Yeah. That was, that yeah. was always their thing. That was, really that was a fun team. It was like a hipster's paradise team, man. And then they made Jeff Teague a lot of money. <laughs> they made Kyle Korver a lot of money. I mean, they made Damari Carroll a lot of money. You look back on it now, like Teague, Carroll, and Korver are such limited players. But in Atlanta, play with Millsap and Horford, they looked freaking awesome that one year. They're all-stars. I mean, was Damari Carroll an all-star? Did that happen? No, wait, no. They no, only I had four. He, they only had four. But he got like a Mac, he got like $60 million off that, you know, for being a nice 3 and D wing. Yeah, he, I mean, back then it was just like, when he was playing on the Hawks, it was like, he was the prototypical 3 and D guy. And so... I think he he hit the market at like 2016, so that was around the gold rush too. So, yeah, I mean, he got uh, those two guys are just great. I mean, they're great teammates. I think if you're Portland, what do you do going forward? Try to get back in the series to like now it's game six at home, fighting game. <sighs> uh I mean, I would love to see more of putting Portland's three best shooters on the court for longer stretches of time like Lillard McCollum and Curry it's a small sample size I think they've only played 20 minutes together but they have a net rating of 11.8 which is certainly better than most of their net ratings across three uh three man lineups it's definitely worth a shot yeah they've been very they've really been confessing the floor the Nuggets defense so Harkless in the series minus 13.1 Alpha Rook minus 10.7 like when those guys are on the floor they're not being guarded and they're not guarding Millsap either so to me What's their value in this series? I'm not really sure. Like their their offense is getting them killed, and they're not guarding anyone. So, to me, the obvious adjustment is to go smaller. Seth Curry more. Zach Collins, he's been playing well. At least he shoots it. And then Rodney Hood. There's been a guy who's like made himself some money this off this offseason. We'll talk about our resurrection. He yeah, won think, that game three. Absolutely. Well, I I feel like he won that game three because he was the only guy with fresh legs. <laughs> that's true but his coach trusts him to play him in that yeah. overtime whereas the Denver guys didn't really go to their bench at all yeah that, that was a big that was a big thing for me I was just like why is Monte Morris not in this game it, it went four oh, it went four overtimes there's no reason why you can't play one of the most stable backup point guards in the league uh, more minutes to be fair I always think that but yeah uh, Morris should have been playing and Hood I think I think if you start Hood that allows you to attack Jamal Murray because they've been hiding Murray on one of them, Aminu and Harkless, usually. And then, like, if you're playing Dame, CJ, and Hood, now you've got a guy who can attack Murray. And, like, you saw what Murray did Derek White in the last round. Like, attacking Murray is easy buckets if you've got the ability. Right. Yeah, so and, like, yeah, and the Nuggets just don't have anyone with the size to match up with him. He's Rodney Hood is basically bigger than Mo Harkless, who Mo Harkless is basically a combo forward at this point. But Hood also has the skills of a shooting guard. All the skills of a shooting guard. And so he's just a matchup nightmare for this Nuggets team that are specifically built like with no one taller than 6'4 or 6'5. Yeah, like that's why everyone's always been like waiting on Hood. Like he's been, he's had some really bad moments in his career. I mean, he couldn't even play last year in Cleveland, wouldn't go off the bench, blah, 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 given up by number of teams. But the skills were always there. Like Rodney Hood is six foot eight, he can shoot threes, he can dribble. Players like that, they have a way of becoming valuable even when you don't think. Even like the, the the skills are always there with him, and I think to me he's probably the guy that has to have a bigger role if Portland's going to win this series. So I, I think this this lineup suggestion you you're 
basically intimating right now is something that you brought up maybe last week or two weeks ago. Like, so you you got Dame, you got CJ, you got Curry, you have Hood, and you have Collins. Basically, Forget just it. give up. Forget give defense. up on defense. Okay, because you're not yeah. guarding them anyways. Let's try to score fifty points. <laughs> like, think about like if you got Jokic like, guarding those guys. Like, you've got five three point shooters. Four of them can dribble. Like, what is he going to do out there on three three point line? Like nothing. Right. You know. Speaking of Chark's fantasies, I think it's time to move on to the crown jewel of these playoffs. Maybe oh for gosh. the rest of the playoffs, Rockets Warriors. This is your dream man. series, man. Game four. I couldn't even go to sleep after game four. It was so intense. Like <laughs> that game was like freaking basketball on speed, man. Like the what was it? The Rockets. The Warriors came back from like fifteen points, like in three minutes. Yep. It was like a Big Twelve football game. It was like we're gonna play ninety four feet, five out. It was man. That this is some crazy basketball, man. I've really been enjoying this series. Yeah, and you made a comment in NBA Slack the other day that you kind of saw this as the future of competitive playoff basketball. You know, players who can't hang will get run off the floor in a couple of possessions, and only the players who can run, who can run up and down, space the floor, and make plays off the dribble will will survive. Well, I think I think the one addendum to that is like if you can't play defense, you better score a lot of points. So I look at like Steph Curry, like he's been kind of attacked on D, but his offense is good enough to where it makes up for it. But like, if you're getting attacked on D, you better score a lot of points to make up for it. I mean, because you look at like the Warriors in the series, they're only getting stuff, they're only getting five guys, basically lineup of death. Like Looney's killing them, Livingston's killing them, McKinney's killing them. Like they've got no depth at all to speak of right now. And it's like, the level of play is so high for everyone on both sides of the floor. Capella's barely playing at this point. Yeah, he only he only logged about twenty minutes in the last game. Yeah, this is like an eighty five million dollars center. But if you can't dribble, pass, and shoot, I think the way the game is played now, the way this Houston Golden State series is, you've got to be a skilled player. If you're not skilled, who cares? And it's almost like it's like soccer almost the way they're playing right now. It's like the ball is constantly moving, the ball spread as far as it can, and like wherever the weak link is, the ball finds it, and it's attack the weak link, get threes. I think the craziest thing for me is how Houston's been playing defense without anyone, like all like six five guys. Yeah, uh, that's one thing that I've I've noticed watching a lot of like of the plays that that end up with field goal attempts by Kevin Durant. He tends to, I don't know if it's it's underselling the defense, but it's like when he has a smaller defender on him, he tends to kind of slack off. He tends to like settle for a lot of of more difficult shots than he might normally. And look, he's so good that he's going to be making most of those shots anyway. But like that's kind of where you can slot, you know, Austin Rivers or like James Harden on him, where they can kind of go underneath him and and kind of force him to take these like mid range jump shots. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like Dirk against the. Remember the We Believe Warriors? Yeah, it was like the same kind of thing because like normally you're this big guy used to attacking slower guys off the dribble. But now they've got these, these smaller guys getting in on his dribble and kind of like pushing him out of his pushing him out of his preferred spots on the floor. And Durant still makes his shots, but it doesn't feel like he's making anyone else better. I mean, really, you're seeing Golden State when Steph Clay's playing bad, Steph's slowing down. It's like sometimes I feel like it's Durant playing by himself out there. It's crazy. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's very Kawhi, which is funny because we've been talking about how KD and Kawhi are, you know, one and two in terms of the postseason, you know, best player or whatever. But yeah, it, it kind of feels like that. Yeah, they're really just getting like, Houston's really imposing their will physically. Like Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon has been incredible. I, I was saying the other day, I think he's probably been the third best player in the series. 
like yeah. the Hall of Famers. Anyway, Eric Gordon's been awesome. Absolutely, and and also like shout out to Austin Rivers, who's really oh, yeah. really making a name for himself. Uh, his minutes have climbed throughout the series. He was at thirty three minutes in Game Five or Game Four. Sorry, Game Four. Um, I mean, I can see a situation in which he should probably playing be playing more minutes than Chris Paul. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that no, is a fantastic it, take. It's I it's mostly just for it. for preservation of of Chris Paul. Like, if you can, if you can skate by, then why not play Austin Rivers thirty six to thirty eight minutes? Because I think I think the one thing Rivers does, he's more of an attacker. Like, he's not feeling the game, trying to run a system. Rivers on the floor, it's like Gordon. They're attacking, attacking, attacking. They're like getting in their spots or dribbling. Like, I'm, look, here's the numbers. So in this series, when Rivers is on the floor. Houston's plus 11.7, 85 minutes. When Rivers is off the floor, they're minus eight in 112 minutes. Like, that's Austin Rivers is swigging this series right now. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. And I, I feel like one thing that, I mean, has really helped the Rockets get back into this series, and it's pretty much been the same key against the Warriors since 2015. Look, if you can dominate the glass, you have a chance against Warriors. You have to be able to extend your possessions and you have to be able to limit theirs. Man, Peter Tucker is bodying fools down he's, there. It's just incredible. And like that's one, that's the one thing that Capella has been able to like at least make himself useful with. Like the past two games, he's been able to get out and and get those offensive rebounds and, and extend those possessions. Uh he can't do anything on defense. He can't do anything on offense, but at least he's extending these possessions and giving, you know, the the playmakers on the Rockets a chance. I feel like this game has become like this series has become pretty simplistic almost. It's like it's such a spread out series. It's just all about me versus the guy across from me. See, I look, I look at the numbers like it's Harden versus Durant, it's Steph and Clay versus Paul and Gordon, and then it's Tucker versus Draymond. And to me, like whoever wins those matchups wins the series. And that's why I see I still have faith in Golden State. Like right. I can't believe th- I can't believe Steph and Clay will be this bad at home. I f- I just I can't believe it. I've seen them play too well too often. Yeah, yeah. I it's I mean it, it was actually kind of shocking that it happened again in Game Four. Uh, to be honest. Yeah, and you look at it for as much as it's the series is so like close. Like if Austin Rivers plays Game One, what happens for Houston? And Golden State had shots in Games Three and Four to win those games, right? Overtime game three, they had two open threes in a game four. All of a sudden, they're, not, they're up 3 1 going back to game five in Golden State. The series might already be over. Yeah, I feel like a lot more has gone wrong for the Warriors than have gone right for the Rockets almost. It, it, it's weird to say because the, the series is so uh, knotted up. Like the, the Warriors literally only have one point on the Rockets the entire series. But I just feel like there's a lot more that can go right for the Warriors. Well, I mean, the big thing is like if somebody gets hurt again because they have no depth right now. Right. I mean, like I don't trust any of their reserves. They've kind of the Rockets kind of figured out Kevon Looney, like his whole I kind of switch and stay on the ground and don't jump on pump fakes. And I'm not very fast. It worked for an extent. Now Harden just headhunting whatever's on the floor. It's like I'm gonna score well at this guy. And then Livingston's pretty much cooked. It seems McKinney seems not ready for the moment. And then it's like what's left? They had it's they have this. <laughs> maybe I was saying it'd be Quinn Cook I don't right. know like can they get minutes from some bench player could like imagine if they had Austin Rivers this is what it's come to <laughs> <laughs> I 
Like, could they have signed Rivers instead of like cut? Right? They could have picked him up, right? Yeah, I don't know how that would have worked. Yeah, I mean, Rivers was basically free off waivers, right? Yeah, yeah. When he got traded to the Suns, Suns let him go, and now. I mean, you're seeing the value of guys like that in these kind of series. If you mm-hmm. can bring a guard off the bench, especially too, like Golden State's offense is pretty much disintegrated, like all their motion, pretty ball movement stuff. Now it's like, you know, there's floor spread, who gets his own shot, who can dribble, who can score. And they just don't have a lot of guys who can do that. I like, I like to see Draymond be more aggressive at the end of game four. That was good. Because he has to score some points. He can't be getting like six points a game right now because they have so few sources of offense. Yeah, and I, I'm curious to see just how far D'Antoni can push this like five smalls lineup where literally no one's taller than 6'6 six, six, um, is in the game. I, I want to see just how far, how many minutes he can, he can tack on with that. How many minutes he can limit Nene, limit Capella. Uh, because really, when you have those five guys on the court, that's when the Warriors truly like, see a team that's up to the task of defeating them. Yeah, and you look at like compared to Portland, like when you're playing your like tuck wagon lineups, you can't leave anyone open. There is no Harkless. There's no Aminu. Like if you leave Tucker open in the corner, that's a three every time. Yeah. You can't leave Gordon open. You can't leave Paul open. Obviously, you can't leave Harden open. You can't leave Rivers open. Like that's really the thing. Like if you can't leave anyone open, man, it's hard to play defense. Defense is all about playing off guys. There's no one to play off of when Houston goes small. And I wonder for me, I look at this series like, I compare Houston last year, and it's, they had bigger, more versatile wings, like Ariza, Mute. He didn't play much in the series. But those guys are very limited in offense. And like they seem to have done well going to smaller, more versatile players and just saying, whatever about length. We'd rather have guys who can score. Right. It's been interesting to watch in the series. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm pouring one out for for my guy, guy. Daniel House. Yeah, uh, we we we've been we've been touting him as a difference maker the entire way through. Um, I predicted that he would swing a game in the series in our dethroning the Warriors video series. I mean, he uh, might have swung a game the wrong way in game one or two. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I don't know where I'm ever going to be putting this out in public anytime soon. So I might as well just drop it here. This is public. Let's go with it. I have a conspiracy here. I think the Rockets are just so confident in this series that they're like, you know, Daniel House is probably going to make a lot of money this season or next season if we keep him in this series, if we keep him, you know, a part of of our of our rotation. Let's let's kind of let's kind of drop him out and and kind of keep his keep his price down a little bit. This is the kind of take I can get behind. When the, I'm, when the <laughs> I'm just I'm just so behind Daniel House's skill set that I'm like this has to be it. There's no there's no reason why. Danny, when reality goes against your takes, just invent conspiracy theories. If there's <laughs> anything d- I learned from the last two years, just in the world, is that double like down, triple down. Your takes are always <laughs> right. Never let the facts interfere with a good take. I'm here to talk to you about Turo, which is a peer-to-peer car-sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want, wherever you want, from a community of local hosts. Plug it in, you, you look for the kind of car you want, and then they'll just have like a whole list of cars, different price points, different types of cars. You pick it up, you drive it for like two or three days. It's really cheap. It's really simple. Me and my wife use it on all our trips. We're going to Hawaii in a few weeks. We're probably going to be using Turo again to get around Maui. It's going to be awesome. And I, like, I'm saying, like, 
If you want to save money, if your expense account and your business only so much money when you use trips, Turo is the way to go, man. And you can get like all kinds of cars. You can go from like a Tesla or a Porsche. If you're like a blogger like me, probably driving a Toyota or a Kia or, you know, or an Audi or something. But download the Turo app. That's T-U-R-O on the App Store or Google Play or visit Turo.com. Get 25 bucks off your first trip when you sign in for sign up for Turo and use promo code Ringer25 at checkout. Terms apply. As has been the case since the playoffs began, uh, we'll cap off this episode of the Corner Three with some draft talk. Uh, it's it's been fairly com- it's been a fairly compelling second round, and there's been a lot of you know trends to glean from. We we've seen a lot of high level basketball and. It, it kind of translates to something that we should be looking at uh, in the t- 2019 class. Uh, Charks, what's something that stands out to you? Uh, just to me, the biggest thing that jumped out to me watching these series, I, I keep when I see Rodney Hood, I'm just seeing Cam Reddish. Like I feel like those guys, they're not quite the same player, but their overall skill sets. To me, it's just like I can see the exact same thing. You look at Reddish; he's six foot nine, got a beautiful looking stroke. He can guard three or four positions. And then, like, he just disappears for games at a time where he does absolutely nothing at Duke. And you're like, what is this guy even doing? He's blowing layups. He's not paying attention. He's missing open shots. And it's like, what does he even do? And I look at him, and I'm looking at Hood, and I, I can see the same career happening. Where, like, you look at Hood, this is his third team now, been given up twice. But those skills are so rare, they're still valuable. I, I, I'm, seeing, I'm thinking Reddish, to me, for as bad as he played this year, I'm starting to believe in him again just because he's a six foot nine guy who shoots threes and guards three positions. <laughs> right. And the thing about Rodney Hood is there was a point in time in which Rodney Hood, who was killing it for the Jazz for a while, was considered arguably the best player in the 2014 draft. This was, you know, obviously before Jokic really got a chance to show out, but uh, there, there was always kind of that level of talent, that, that baseline level of talent. He was always a guy who was comfortable creating his own shot who could shoot off the dribble. Um, the talent was always there, but w- we're also t- look, talking about Hood in a very kind of loose reserve role. Um, and it can be kind of hard to extract a player's value from the value of the draft pick itself. So like, what? where do you see a, a Rodney Hood type player, this type of Rodney Hood type player landing in a draft? Yeah, and the thing with Hood, he averaged three points a game against the Thunder. Right. Yeah. Like he had good, he has good games and he has terrible games. I don't know. Like I'm looking at this draft and after Zion and Ja and a couple other guys, like no one's that good. So why not game on a guy you know has talent? Like in five years, if you get fired for like drafting a guy, at least you can look at Hood, uh, British, but oh, he's at, he has talent. Like you can justify that. Like look at his skills. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, no one's looking at you like you're crazy. Do you remember the whole thing with um, Dave Yerger and Hood when he was in Memphis? Yeah, absolutely. And he would like constantly make fun of Jordan Adams. Jordan Adams, yeah. yeah. And he was like, this guy is fat and he can't, he, he doesn't move and he's hurt all the time. And you drafted him over Rodney Hood? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's probably why Yeager is uh, out of a job right now because he's consistently done that for, for about three or four years. It's true. But, uh, but, yeah. but I think the idea of like, at least the guy has talent. At least you can look at that and you can justify. To me, I look at Cam Reddish and I'm like, if he gets to Atlanta, if you can play him off Trey Young and John Collins with Herder on their wings, I could see him being, I'd be a great fit for him. Yeah. I, I mean, the big thing with Cam was just like, when you watched him in college, there was just very little to go, 
there was very little that correlated with the kind of idea of him that we all had entering the season. Uh, he finished with one of the worst, you know, percentages around the rim that I've ever seen from a prospect. I think Cram uh, had the numbers. He said Reddish was the worst uh, effective field goal shooter since Miles Carter Williams among like lottery prospects. Incredible. So. That's that's just incredible company to keep. Uh, <laughs> but also, it's like, you know, once once the the combine comes around, I don't know how much all of that's going to matter. He, you're right. He just he just looks the part, and he has all of the requisite skills, at least in theory. I mean, I he's got the free throw percentage, steal rate, free three point percentage. Like those are the skills that translate, right? Size, shooting ability, defense. I think with him, it'll be all about role. I actually, I think with pretty much every player, I'm like, man, if he goes to Atlanta, that's probably a good spot for him. If yeah. he goes to like Cleveland, <laughs> playing with Sexton, and then this might be that might be tough. Uh, yeah, and, and we've talked a lot about Austin Rivers in this podcast, how, how much he has kind of changed the, the trajectory of the Rockets just by being a guy who can play defense, can create his own shot, can attack, is relentless attacking. Um, it's kind of the revenge of the combo guards uh, in, in 2019. They've come back in a big way. It isn't just Rivers. Like, you look at that Buck Celtic series, kind of the untold story is George Hill. Yes, he has been incredible. So look at these numbers. So in this Celtic series, George Hill is plus fifteen point nine, one hundred five minutes on the floor. When George Hill's off the floor, they're minus eleven in eighty seven minutes. That's a 20, 25 point net rating swing. Right. That, yeah. That's insane. And like Hills, like Bledsoe's had some moments where he's looked like Bledsoe of last year. And it doesn't even matter for Milwaukee. They plugged Hill into that role. He can shoot threes. He's a really smart player. He spreads the floor. He makes the right decisions. And like he's kind of replaced Bledsoe and Brogdon at times. And he's really, it's so crazy that George Hill at this stage of his career has swung a playoff series. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot of the fact that he's a really smart player who knows exactly what he needs to do on a team. It's been the case ever since his days in San Antonio, where he was kind of groomed as that, you know, score off the bench. Went to Indiana, became a kind of caretaker point guard, and, and that's never really left his system. He he just knows exactly what he needs to do to accomplish whatever the team needs him uh, for. I mean, like he would he won for Cleveland. He was starting the NBA Finals last season. Yeah, like they don't make the finals of George Hill. No quite no way about it. So like, if you're looking at this crop of prospects in the 2019 draft, is there any player that kind of fits this mold? Hmm, that's a good question. I, well, the guy I could come back to is our guy Alexander Walker. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, as I, I break down the games of a lot of these like comboish guards, out Nikhil Alexander Walker. He's the cousin of Shea Gos Alexander. He's six six, two hundred pounds. He's very long. He can really shoot it. He can he can play on or off the ball. He averaged forces a game this year at Virginia Tech, and like he's a guy who can defend. He'll stay on the floor on defense. He can really shoot it. He can make smart decisions. And I'm breaking down his game like, how many guards in this draft are as well-rounded as Nikhil Alexander-Walker? Yeah, I, I, he's one of my favorites. And I, I think he's definitely a guy I would consider in the, in the lottery just because of that specific skill set. He can shoot threes. And, and not only that, but he's kind of started off his freshman year as a specialist. He was just mainly just shooting threes. Second year, he became a much bigger part of their offense without losing any of his efficiency. He actually got more efficient um, in a bigger role, and he won't have a huge role in the NBA in terms of being a star or whatever. But like, 
there is always you know room for a Brogdon-ish guy who can be a secondary playmaker and who can hit open threes. And the other thing too, um, there's a baseline for athletic ability that Alexander Walker has. Like I feel like their games, it's kind of like Ty Jerome for Virginia, but like there's a certain baseline. Okay, Ty Jerome's gonna get killed on defense. Yeah, I think NAW does just enough to stay on the floor. And then I compare him to some of the other the freshman guards, and I feel like his feel for the game is so much higher. Even the guy like Kobe White or Romeo Langford or Kevin Porter, they're all guys who kind of hunt shots but can't play within a system. And to me, NAW is a guy you plug him in right away. He just knows he knows how to play, and he doesn't have any real defined holes in his game. And I, I could see that being valuable on the right team, very yeah. valuable. And this is kind of where a guy like T- Taylor Horton Tucker, another hyphenate name. Uh, becomes kind of like a very interesting player. Uh, A guy who can maybe define what this draft ends up meaning because he has potential to be a shot creator at the wing, but he also has the build and the wingspan to be like this PJ Tucker, Eric Gordon type player on D who can kind of switch onto bigger guys and hold, hold his own. He, he has a thick frame and he's, he's only 18. He's, he's one of the youngest players in this draft. It could be a very interesting down the line. I mean, talk about Steve Kerr's quote about we've got uh, volleyball players versus football players in Houston. Yeah. THT is like as football as it gets, man. <laughs> I wonder what he actually weighs. Like, and I was watching him. Like, the word my my worry with THT, it's like with Embiid, kind of. Not that they're the same kind of player, but that diet, like that man, has got to be careful what he eats. Because mm-hmm. he's if he's two forty at eighteen, and he's not like in great shape. If he's not like, I could see him getting out of the league. He can put on 20 pounds easily, probably, if he's not careful. But see how big his frame is, how wide he is. Yeah, he he has that kind of... I, I mean, when I watch him, he's like a 6'4", like Clarence Weatherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, he's got athletic ability, but it's just like, wow, man. Like that, he, he has like, like a it's true hidden, bowling it's tr- ball frame. It's truly hidden. Like, you know, like, at, like, if he would just cut some weight. Like, that's to me, I feel like Horton Tucker, he has a huge range of outcomes where if he could just, like, stay in shape... Because I could totally see him like, get into the NBA. And he has a lot of confidence, too. And his coach is like, I'm going to let this fat kid just shoot like 20 times a game and take terrible shots. I don't think so. Like, what, What's going on here? Yeah, that's, that's kind of the thing. By the time he figures it out, if he figures it out, the team that makes that initial investment might not be the, the team that actually you know, is able to prosper from the kind of skill set that he projects to have. I mean, right? Look at Rivers and Hill. They bounced around the league a few times. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so one of the things that, look, this is probably beating a dead horse, but one of the things that stands out to me is just, look, if Capella couldn't make any kind of inroads in, in getting better against the Warriors this season, we, we've seen it with Rudy Gobert, we've seen it with Steven Adams, maybe don't draft an inexperienced rim runner with the lottery pick. <laughs> you know? Like, what what really is the upside there? Like, Jackson Hayes has gotten considerable hype as a lottery player but he's really raw and he's going to get burned by these types of teams in the future why not wait why not wait until the second round to draft a guy who has comparable talent and you know you you can you can spend that early pick on something much more valuable that is the question i always come back to like in the playoffs and it's like with a draft i mean in the playoffs it's like there's some value. It's what Draymond Green said. He's like, there's 82 game players and there's 16 game players. And how much do you value that if you're a lottery team? Right. Because like 
Theoretically, Orlando's been drafting 16-game players for years, but they never get to the playoffs anyway, so what's the difference, right? And like, there's some guys who have more value in the regular season than they would in like these high-leverage situations. But do you have to get to that situation first before you can even worry about that? I don't know. But yeah, like at a certain point, like when do teams stop paying, you know, twenty five mil for a guy like Steven Adams or like twenty mil over. for a Pella? I, I might guess my guess. That would be my suspicion is that that is officially done. Officially done. Cause to me, like, yeah, like centers are platoon players now. Unless you have a Jokic or a Towns or a Davis or an Embiid, someone who's a like a legitimate offensive superstar. To, to me, like then, then at that point, you're mixing and matching. You've got your rim-running center, your floor-spacing center, your playmaking center, your big-bodied center. You just have different kind of guys you plug in out of lineups to make most sense. So I'm with you on that. Like I don't think you'll see us start taking the top 10 this year. That'd be my guess when it all, when it all kind of plays out. To bring it back to one of KOC's boys, Goga Batazzi, do you think he has potential in that regard? See, I like Goga a lot, but that's the kind of guy I wonder about like to me, I I wonder, Goga, is he gonna be more than a platoon guy in the playoffs? Or is mm-hmm. he I could see him being a 35 minute night guy in the regular season, but where does he really fit in a playoff series against a spread team? And is he gonna be the thing with all these with all centers, like can you can you attack those points the other way? Like, because you're gonna give up points against these spread teams. It's just a reality. But if you're not making up for those points on offense, then you're getting plenty off the floor. And Goga's good, but can Goga have the offense run through him? He's very young. Maybe. He's got a lot of skills. I would say of all the centers, Goga's probably the guy who has the best chance. But then it's like, why not just play uh, PJ Washington at center? Or DeAndre <laughs> Hunter at center right, at that point? I think, that that, I think that's a perfect way to end <laughs> this, this podcast. It always on, goes on, back to that. It always goes back purest, to that purest possible chart statement <laughs> you could possibly get about two like obscure well not really obscure but two draft prospects who probably will not be playing center anytime soon yeah on that yeah i think that's probably a good time they're good at yeah that, that's all the time we have for this one thanks for listening shout out to bobby wagner for producing and shout out to kevin o'connor and the o'connor family yeah, again you're in, you're in our hearts and minds absolutely